You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I'm going to tell you something, people. Uh, Joanne and my first wedding anniversary is coming up the 13th of this month. It's been one year since we got married. And I remember when we walked out, we got introduced to the song, uh, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, which I love that song. So I hit up my friend, Melissa Charlotte, who's a really amazing singer-songwriter who I've known for years. And I said, hey, can you can you record it for me, you know, on the keyboard, something nice, you know, I'll pay it. And she did it, and she did a great job. But then as we were talking, I said who my guest is today, and she said when she was younger, she loved this woman because of her voice, and that they had the same first name, and they both had curly hair, so she always felt like she was a grown-up version of her. And I just thought that was a really cute story. And uh, my guest, my guest is such a talent. She said she also, besides being a singer-songwriter, she acts. She's doing everything. And my guest is Melissa Manchester. How you doing, Melissa? Got fine. How are you? I'm doing good. How how how's it out there in LA? I know I lived there for years. It's been crazy with the fires and the heat. Are you are you are you making okay? Yeah, I'm okay. The air is completely foul, but it's much cooler now. On Sunday, it, um, it was about 114 here. Um, and with the fires, it was really impossible. But um, today, it's a very pleasant 75, but the air is still very funky. There's ash in the air, so it's weird. Now, I got to ask you, it seemed like, you know, I was reading your press release, you, you're, you're very busy right now. And I wanted to ask you, because as an artist, since this pandemic has happened, a lot of us, it's gone a lot longer than most of us had thought. But for you, what have your stages been in? Because I talk to a lot of people who say in the beginning, they weren't really feeling creative, and then they were. Where have you been throughout this whole, what, six months? Yes, it's been unbelievably six months. Where I've been is I've had to um, go through many emotional layers uh, as the days wore on because, you know, a Thursday felt like a Tuesday and a Tuesday felt like a Sunday. You know, you just lost a sense of time. And the first thing I had to deal with was grief over my former life because my career shut down really hard and fast. All of my concerts were canceled, postponed, rescheduled. And my experience with being home usually meant being in between gigs, but now I am home for a long time. And I'm I'm delighted that my daughter moved back in with me, and that's great. Um, She works every day. And I had to to find my footing uh, because I don't write every day. I read some days. I swim some days. I let my mind just wander around some days. But then I also knew that prior to the pandemic, um, I had recorded most of what was going to be my 24th album called Review. And so um, I decided to finish what I could and um, we're in pretty good shape. My plan is to release a single a month. And then at the end, it will be this collection called Review. And it's based on... um, these are, these are hits that were released, you know, at the beginning of my career, but the intention is twofold because I've grown into these songs. I've tweaked harmonics. I've added certain things. I understand the songs on a deeper level because they've become monologues for me. But also, um, on the practical level, like many of my colleagues, when we recorded our songs in the 70s, and 80s, 
those tracks belonged to the record companies. Those masters belonged to them. And so the only way we can empower ourselves is to re-record those songs. And that's what I, along with many of my colleagues, have been doing. So when you record them, then you have all the rights. That's what happens, because I'm not too familiar. So basically, the record companies had the rights, but when you say, you know what, I'm changing this up, because you wrote it. So then when you do that, it's your it becomes your catalog then? Yes, that's correct. Even if I didn't write it, if I had the hit with it, there are there are royalties that are attributed to me, and it, it you know songs of mine get licensed all the time. But now this way, it's not going through uh, the record company because in those days, I mean, truth be told, nobody could imagine the revenue streams that exist today. Nobody, and so um, so it's fascinating. You know, we are we are as far as the music industry. The, the wheel has been rediscovered, and it's not quite the round the way we understood what round meant. Well, it's funny. It's interesting. I think it's a very interesting concept that you're putting out one track a month. Because yeah. I think, and I've talked to a lot of people my age, I'm 56, and I've talked to a lot of people my age, and, you know, we were album guys you know we love that album feeling it reading it liner notes and kids don't do that anymore so it's not it seems like no one actually goes out hopefully some vinyl is starting to come back but people don't like an album and you know because you create an album to you it had to be like a, almost like a child because it was like almost a creation yeah. yeah well you know what what is interesting and it is the completion of a circle for sure is that kids are more used to singles they are less used to the concept of an album where you sit through it and the album itself becomes the event. Um, because for, for all sorts of reasons, you know, shorter attention spans, they, you know, kids who are just entering the marketplace who are becoming buying audiences, um, they, they are familiar with the world that has presented itself to them. So they have very short attention spans. They don't see an album as an event mostly not all the time but mostly and so and so they glom on to a single which is the way the music industry started in the 50s you know as we know it today so yeah it's interesting now what is it like revisiting those songs i just say they were from a while back and you've changed as an individual we've all aged you know we sit there we've gone through different thoughts and the songs when you look back at them do they take you back to a place in time and is it hard to update that to now that it's more you, you at this age? No, what has happened, because I've been singing these songs all along, um, the blessing has been that I've never tired of these songs. And so the more I've performed them, the more insight I've gotten into, into the in, inherent <laughs> wisdom of when Carol Sager and I wrote many of these songs. Uh, you know, we were women in our 20s. The women's movement was sort of burgeoning. This was before AIDS. Uh, we understood marginalized audiences. Um, and we were two young women just using these songs to, to, to extend the conversations that led to the song being written. These songs sound very conversational because they literally came out of conversations. And so in, in performing them for almost 50 years now, um, they, they really have become not only monologues, but but my side of a conversation. And so they become infused with much more experience, um, much uh, much more breadth and depth 
and um, and they have grown into these times, which is the really uh, the really uh, magical, mystical component of the life of a song. Um, you know, I was never terribly interested in being current. I was always interested in being timeless, and somehow these songs have serviced that part of my career. So I'm very grateful. Now, how did this whole career start? I know, I believe your father was a musician. Your mom was a designer. I, I'm guessing you had a somewhat of a artsy household, but probably encouraged you growing as a singer. How did you get started in this path that has become a lifelong career? Yeah, um, I, I did indeed grow up in a very festive home. My father was a bassoonist with the Metropolitan Opera. My mother was a pioneer in the fashion industry. Uh, as a designer, and my sister and I were were raised with the seeing life through the filter of if you have a dream, go for the dream. Because my parents were really both the black sheep of their family, and they just ended up fortunate, working hard. I never knew that we were poor. <laughs> we very often were, but we were cheerful. <laughs> and I thought everybody had tuna casserole seven nights a week. And um, uh, so... So that's what it was. And, of course, growing up in the Bronx in Manhattan was just the perfect place to to be surrounded by adventures. I mean, I, you know, I couldn't go two blocks without stumbling upon either a great program in the, run by the Parks Department as a, as a teenager or um, when I was 17, I, I became a staff writer at Chapel Music. And um, that same year, I studied songwriting with the great Paul Simon. And I also became, because it was just down the block for me, I became a gopher at the Children's Television Network during the first season of Sesame Street. I was, uh, you know, I was 17 and all of that was, was happening. Um, you know, and the career, the singing part of it, I started singing commercials when I was 15. My late brother-in-law was a a jingle writer, and he knew that I could sing. He'd heard me, and he brought me up to start singing commercials. And so I, you know, I was making a living um, starting at age fifteen. And jingles were a tremendous way to learn because you were on your feet. You had, there was a client in the control booth giving you instructions, and he didn't really understand about music or singers or blending or anything like that. You know, so, so we just sort of interpreted what people were telling us. Of course, I was standing next to Barry Manilow and Patty Austin and Valerie Simpson and Nick Ashford because we were all jingle singers. So it was, it was remarkable. Now, how did you meet Carol Bayer-Sager? Uh, Carol came to see a concert, the New Year's Eve concert of Bette Midler at Lincoln Center, which was the last time I performed as the founding member of the Harlots with Bette. And um, I worked for her for six months. Tremendous. And Carol was in the audience and called me uh, and said, do you, do you sing demos? And I said, well, sure. And so she hired me to sing on a demo of hers. And I finished singing and she said, do you write? And I said, well, yes, I've been, I've been writing. And so I came up to her apartment and we started to write. What I did not know at the time was I was the first artist that she was collaborating with. And so she was sort of draping songs on me. Prior to that, she had been a Brill Building staff writer. 
and um, very successful. And uh, so it was it was very interesting. We, we wrote um, wrote a lot of songs, several very good songs. What was the music scene like back there? I, I just think about it, you know, you think of like New York City at that time, as you said, it was the beginning of the women's movement. It's one of those things that's just such a, it must have just been fascinating. Did you learn a lot? And was it, was everyone very supportive in the culture of in songwriters? Yeah, well, in, in those times in the uh, early 70s, um, yes, Yes, there were. You know, there was a convention of how you got your foot in the door. You either got a publishing deal, and you could live off the advance because in those days, apartments in the five boroughs of New York were pretty cheap. And um, and and the group that I ran with, you know, Mallow and 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 others, we were all very supportive of each other because we knew that. You know, we were always asking each other, did you get a a meeting with a publisher or did you sign with a record deal or did something happen that moved your career along? And we were all hungry to get to that next step. So so it was it was very supportive and it was a lot of fun. We laughed a lot. Marilyn and I could barely sing half the time because we were just giggling all the time. And, um, you know, we've remained brand friends um, and. yeah, it was it was very supportive. It was always it was always rigorous because mostly you you were not accepted. You know, a record company passed on you or a publishing company passed on you. But I got very fortunate, and I was signed to Chapel Music before it became Warner Chapel when I was seventeen. Now, when did you start getting traction and getting you know recognized that you knew you were going to have a good record deal? When did your career really, in your eyes, start? kicking into gear well you asked two different questions which one would you like me to answer the one about the record deal or the one about the traction uh the record deal okay um i had um, made a couple of singles that were just sort of independent and, and didn't really go anywhere but when i i i had submitted uh demos um in all combinations of instrumentation over a seven-year period and were summarily dismissed. And then I met Hank Medris and Dave Apple, and they decided to commit as my co-producers. Hank Medris um, was the high voice on um, Lion Sleeps Tonight. <laughs> That's him. And Dave Apple, I don't know if you remember the Ernie Kovacs show, he was one of the Nairobi trio. And uh, these were these were grand fellows, real musicians. So they had... They, they put together an audition for me for Larry Vital, the president of Bell Records at the time. And I was, I was pretty busy in, in those days. I was in my young 20s, but I, you know, I walked in. There was an upright piano facing the wall in a room full of suits, you know, a bunch of guys who worked for Larry Utah. And I played and I played and I played and I played and I played. And when it was over, I was about to leave, and I thanked everybody in the room. I was about to leave, and I was particularly tired that day. I remember that. And as I was leaving, sweet Larry Utel, who was just a, a superb gentleman, he, he stopped me as I was about to leave. He said, how important is this to you? And I looked him right in the face, and I said, I'm going to do this with you or without you. Have a nice day. <laughs> and I left. And the next thing I knew, I had a record deal. 
So then we get to the next question. When did your career start getting traction? When did you start, you know, getting, starting to hear yourself on the radio? When things started, doors started opening and people started knowing your name? Well, the first two albums that I created for Bell Records, I started to get a following on the college radio level, which was really, really important. There's primary radio uh, route, there's secondary markets, and then there's, there's college. Well, there was in those days. And, you know, if you can, if you could get in good with the college audiences, that was, that was a real basis of a career. And I played every college coffee house, every toilet on a college campus, you know, in New York, New Jersey, Delaware, Connecticut. Um, and in those days, I would not play on an electric piano. I was a real purist. So I would play on any piece of crap upright that they had in the coffee house. And it was frequently facing the back wall. So I was frequently performing with my back to the audience. And um, But when Clive Davis absorbed Bell Records uh, into Arista, and I made my third album called Melissa, and they released Midnight Blue as the first single. And I did a very rugged coast-to-coast uh, -coast, uh, support radio tour and I visited all radio stations primary secondary college whatever <clears throat> and one day I was driving across Texas with my tour manager and I had heard myself on on radio because of you know, being a jingle singer but the first time I heard uh, Midnight Blue that was that was different because I was in the room when it happened when I wrote that with Carol Sager I, rem I knew what it was like to be in the studio. I sang all the background parts, and there was my composition. And the next time I played a gig, I started playing that opening vamp, and the audience just erupted with recognition. And then I knew that there had been a seismic shift, and I really saw the power of what a single and a connection with an audience could be. It always amazes me, like, so many people remember that when they heard that song, and they were like, oh, my God. As you said, yes. it's it's me. I, I wrote that. And it must just be such a, a great feeling. But now, as it starts getting, you start hearing it more and more, Does it? when does it start losing its novelty of hearing it? No, it, it never loses its novelty because, as the saying goes, the only thing harder than the first single is the second single. So you're always striving. And it's so mysterious as to why something works. Um, it's equally mysterious when something doesn't work. Um, though there are, you know, specialists in the room who specialize in understanding what makes a hit. Um, I, I don't know what makes a hit. I know that a production is very important. I know that, I know that the truth, because when I, when I studied with Paul Simon, when I studied songwriting with him, Bridge Over Troubled Waters was number one over, all over the world. And, you know, the, the wisdom that he imparted to these students that he had auditioned all himself was that all of the stories have been told. It is the way you tell your story that is your mark of authenticity. And so what I learned early is that I'm not writing for all of my friends who love me and are happy to hear a new song. I'm writing for somebody who picked up you know, a tape off the floor, never heard of me, put it in, played it, and got it in three minutes and wanted to hear more. And that is, that is 
very, very different writing. That is where you hone your skill and you understand the importance of um, uh, the, the substance of a lyric, the crafting of a melody, the importance of a production. I mean, it's really, really, really interesting. You're always learning. Now, when you stop playing all the college places with your back to the crowd, when you started playing in nicer places and you had the right setup, what was that feeling? Was it just something that you said, man, I've, I'm, I'm here, I'm, I'm playing, this is what I've wanted, this is what I've dreamed of? Yes, it's, it's pretty much it's what I've dreamed of. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so much, the thing is, you can dream. I always wanted a sparkling life. I always, and I always knew that my singing and music was going to get me there. I mean, I was, I love musical theater, but I was not a theater baby. I love writing for musical theater, but that, but being on the stage is interesting, but it's not my hunger. My hunger is what I do. My hunger is writing songs and, and performing concerts and communing with the audience. And, and once the audiences started recognizing my songs and letting me know through, well, in the early days, you know, fan mail, that my songs were, were making a difference in the qualities of their lives and helping them get through hard times, you know, it was extraordinary because that's, when, you know, when you're writing a song, you're facing a, a pad of white paper. <laughs> you know, you're creating a world that didn't exist a couple of hours ago. And suddenly, not only does the world exist for you in three minutes and 30 seconds, it gives voice to the listener and brings clarity and brings a life raft many times, a rope for them to hold on to. So that was... Um, that was really remarkable, and and it remains to this day. You know, even though my my audiences are are no longer college age because we were all college age at the same time. Now they come and bring their kids or their grandkids. When they tell me what what my songs help them get through, it's just um, it's very humbling. And the deeper I am into this career career of mine the deeper my appreciation for the gift is. Now, in the part of your career, you know, you said, well, now you don't write every day. When you look at, you know, your, your records and the ones you put out, you were coming out with a record a year for a while there. I mean, how, how would you keep that? And you were coming out and they were popular records. It wasn't just like you were throwing something together. They were great records. How do you keep yourself disciplined? Because as you said, you're on the road, you're doing this, you're doing that. And I've heard, you know, some of these tours when you're at the radio at seven, it's not like you can call in now, like it's seven in the morning. How were you keeping up such a, not only a high, a, a, a lot of a quality, a, you were putting out quantity and quality. Is Was that taxing on you at all? No, there are, there are years that I don't remember. <laughs> I mean, I see the work, so I know I was involved with the work, you know, for, for about five years, I was writing, recording, and touring, and that's what I did, and um, I would write on the road, I would come home and I would share what I scribbled, you know, with Carol Sager, or Adrian Anderson, or Bernie Taupin, or Kenny Loggins, whomever I was writing with, and then we would go right into the studio, I mean, there was just hardly a break, 
And, you know, in those days, there were very few women on the road. There were very few, few women bus drivers, truckers, tour managers. I was, I was the girl singer. Um, and, and I was, it was my name, but it took me a very long time to learn how to be a boss. And, um, but, but that's what it was. It was extremely rigorous. It was extremely exhausting. You know, when I hear about people who party on the road all the time, I, I can't imagine. It takes so much strength and focus to perform that to be loaded and go on stage is just crazy. <laughs> I don't understand it. It's a crazy choice because to perform. And also, the, the legacy of performers that I carry with me, that I stand on the shoulders of, were so spectacular. I was never really a rock and roller. I never was. I, my, my psychic musical godmothers were Ella Fitzgerald and Judy Garland, you know, and all of the great pop singers, you know, Billie Holiday and Sarah Vaughan and Edie Gourmet and Rosie Clooney. Those gals delivered the, the melody and the words of a song that was composed. And I just think that is stunning because in what they were singing in those days were very long melody lines very long lyrical ideas. Um, today, that does not exist. They're mostly very short melody lines that repeat and repeat, and short clips of ideas that sometimes get developed, but mostly not. And so it's it's very interesting. I mean, I know what I do, and that's what I do. This is going to sound like a weird question, but I was a kid who grew up watching musicians on TV. Which did you prefer doing, Midnight Special or American Bandstand? <laughs> well, I did the American Bandstand real early. I was very grateful that I did nine shows of Midnight Special. It was it was an uncanny show. The fact that Don Kirshner could get it going was so unbelievable. I mean, this was a cockamamie variety show in any way that you look at it. You know, we were, there was such a, an array of styles of musicians, one after another. The audience would come in, sit down on the floor, and they would turn from stage right to stage left, and they never knew who was going to show up next, and it was all great. You know, it was me, and then a country artist, and then Richard Pryor, and then me, and then somebody else, you know, heavy rocker. And, I mean, it was just incredible. And it, and it lasted, and the audience dug it because it was a new form you know it was post ed sullivan and so it was a new form of variety show for for young uh, audiences just great now, but of course working with with dick clark was was just unbelievable he was he was such a he was such a supporter of young artists i mean he he didn't want to be one himself he was not jealous he just loved his platform and to be able to bring new talent to people. It's stunning. Now, something that also fascinates me is that you were nominated for two Academy Awards in one year. Yeah. And I believe, did you sing both songs on that show? Yes, I was the first artist to sing two nominated songs. What is that like? Like when you're, I mean, is there one you're like, oh, I like this one better, or I like this one better? I mean, you're delivering both. They're both in competition for each other. I mean, what is it like to all of a sudden sit there and say, I'm, I'm not only singing at the 
Academy Awards. I'm nominated, but I'm singing twice. That must just be a feeling that this must be unbelievable. Yes, it was unbelievable. Yeah, it was unbelievable on many levels. I was wearing my first Bob Mackie gown in very high heels, and the director thought it would be a really good idea if I walked down two flights of stairs while I was singing with no banister. And, um, <laughs> but, you know, I was singing these glorious songs written by my magnificent friends, Marilyn and Alan Bergman and David Shire, and uh, and Carol Sager and Marvin Hamlish, and, um, and singing to a billion people. You know, these are, the, re- the results of these moments, you know, in those days, my friends would call and they'd say, we have a song, would you like to sing it? Would you like to record it? Sure, I love you. I know you'll write good stuff. And I, I would bring in my band and we would record. But the result of it was so astounding. And to see, and then I sang uh, a year later again on the Academy Awards for another song. But it was, um, that's the thing. These, uh, again, this is a re- these are decades ago, but the quality of these compositions are so magnificent. I never get tired of singing them because they are gifts. And I am so blessed that they were gifted to me. So you had this great career, and then you decide, when did you decide you wanted to get into acting a little bit? Because it's one of those things, It was you said you liked writing musical theater, you weren't a theater baby, but what made you decide, was it just to expand your horizons and say, you know what, I this is something I've always wanted to do? Yes, well, I grew up loving theater and going to theater, and I, my family always listened to, you know, the original cast recordings of whatever was was just opening on Broadway. And uh, I was approached by Richard Maltby, who is the director of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Song and Dance, uh, which had been running on Broadway with Bernadette Peters, and they wanted to know if I wanted to take over her role and do the national tour for six months. And um, it sounded like a good idea. (laughs) I mean, for me, if it's an adventure, I'm usually in. Because, because an adventure means I'm going to learn something. I'm going to learn about my own reservoir of strength. I've never done eight shows a week. I've never done eight shows a week. And and when I when I got familiar with the piece, um, I realized that I was the only one on stage for Act One. I was song, and then the second half was all dance. And I tell you, I never worked so hard in my life. Plus, I was schlepping my nine-month-old baby, my his dad, my parents on a bus that had a crib in it. And because I was the star of the show, I was doing all of the press on my day off. Um, and it was brutally hard. It was, you know, it was very fulfilling because I survived it. I got through it, and I learned a lot about myself, and I loved the company and I loved Richard Maltby and and it was um, deeply interesting to to be an actor who sings for a while um, but it was uh, but I missed I missed concertizing after that and and you know um, people have told me that when you're on Broadway when you're in one place it's a whole different experience and I, I never got to that but um, Anyway, it was it was very interesting to do, and then I did um, 
I did the TV show Blossom. I played her mother, Mayim Bialik's mother, Maddie. I created that role, and that was a lot of fun. Well, it's always funny. I always think about, you know, because I've been on movie sets and TV sets, and it's such a different day. Like, people, you've been on it. People who've never been on it don't understand. It's a lot of sitting around and waiting. And they don't, they don't get that. They go, oh, it must be great. And you're like, oh, no, you, you sit around and then. Yeah, 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 it is. But, um, it, you know, I was surrounded by really interesting people. You know, Maya Bialik was 14 years old at the time. Brilliant, brilliant. I knew that she could, you know, she could have directed it all. She was so beautifully composed and raised so well by her parents. And uh, the company was lovely. And I got a chance to work with the late Bill Bixby. He was quite ill at the time, but, but he was the director. And um, yeah, it was, it was another adventure, you know, it was great. Now, these days, as you said, you're working on a music. Why did you pick Just You and I as your first single? Um, the reason I picked Just You and I as the first single is because it really speaks, in my opinion, to this moment where we are struggling on so many levels in our beautiful nation that is suffering so terribly from this mishandled pandemic and the the everyday workers who are suffering terribly um the the courage of essential workers and everyday folks who are you know without a paycheck without a safety net and i just wanted to to create a video and rethink the song and the subtext of just you and I, that that we are, you know, if we can believe in each other and some semblance of the good of this nation, which I, which I firmly believe in, then we will get through this. Um, but we have to recognize the humanity in each other and not the otherness in each other. Now... Tell me about the Citrus Singers. Um, I am artist in residence at Citrus College, which is a community college about 50 miles and 50 minutes southeast of Los Angeles, where I am now. And um, it's a community college, but it has a spectacular music department. And I was brought in several years ago as artist in residence, which meant that, you know, whatever I could come up with to, to use their music students, their, their musicians, their singers, I would have access to. And what I knew to be true about Just You and I this time is that I wanted the Citrus Choir to be on this, and I wanted to compose parts for them to sing to make the song even more anthemic than it is, richer in its texture. And I had uh, the Citrus Musicians play on track. And um, so it was just, we recorded it at their state-of-the-art studio. And you can you will see that in the video. And um, it was just, uh, it was just fantastic. You know, it just, it turned out just as I hoped it would. And the video shows, you know, everyday Joes and Janes just doing their job, trying to make it through with their masks on and, delivering and mail people and ambulance people and nurses and you know firefighters and, and people who build houses for other people for no reason other than it's the right thing to do. So that's that's me. That's what I did. And what tell me about Awake. I know you wrote the music for that but not the the words, right? Correct. 
Awake was a was a poem I discovered when I was 17, a long, long time ago, by the writer Rabindranath Tagore. He's an Indian Nobel Prize winner for literature. He wrote poems and plays and essays, really a stunning body of work. And I, I read this poem, which was part of a series of poems, and I always, as soon as I heard it, the language was so rapturous that I knew I was hearing something, it just would not distill itself into a melody. So I would take it out and I would read it, you know, once or twice a year, and I would still hear something, but I could not distill it. And then a couple of years ago, uh, during the summer, I opened it up, you know, I had made my morning pot of coffee, I was in my pajamas, I opened it up and I started to hear it. And I got very still, so I would hold on to what I was hearing, because the thing about inspiration, when you start to hear it, if you are distracted, it will disappear. That's just the way it is. So you have to get very, very still, so you just can keep hearing it before you even hum it. So you just hear what you think you're hearing and keep hearing it, and then you start to plunk it out on the piano. And so what I did, which was new for me, I heard it as a choral piece. And so every day I would write out soprano, alto, bass, tenor, and both hands of the piano, which I'd never done before. And I wrote out about four bars, top to bottom, every day. It took me about a month to compose it. And um, last year, um, the uh, Temiculus Community Symphony and Choir did the premiere of it. But I wanted to uh, record it again. We're in a period of time where you think to yourself, what can I contribute? What can I do to be of service somehow? And this is what I do. I make music. Uh, and, uh, and I had a, a pile of great, talented singing friends who sang on it. And um, we came out with a beautiful, I think, beautiful video that that has the words of Tagore's um, uh, musings. And I think it really speaks again to these times. I mean, these times are so unusual and we've never been through any of them, never. Our parents never were. Even even those who got through the depression did not experience this. And so it has moved me to, to see what's in my soul to bring forth and see where it has been. And music's always great for that. Now. Now, the album, you said you're going to release one single a month. Do you already have them all picked out? Do you know what you're already playing? Is everything done? And how are you going to, is there like a certain date you'll release the singles, or how's that going to work? Well, we're trying to do one a month. Um, You know, there's still a little bit of tweaking to do now that there's an actual due date. Uh, You know, the vocals are done, and the tracks are done. It's just mixing and mastering and I may want to replace a, a keyboard for piano or whatever, but, but they're basically done. There are two songs that I didn't get a chance to record, and I'm going to have to figure that out because they definitely belong on this album. So, um, yeah, so it's, um, it's interesting. Now, how has the music industry changed in your eyes over the years? Because it's so funny, now you can record, if you're away, so you can record with someone across the seas, I mean, you know, with all the different things. But as a singer-songwriter, has the industry really changed as you know it, or for you, because you are a, you make great music, it's somewhat the same? Oh, you know, there's, there's plenty of really good music, but, but 
but the actual what makes the music industry is unrecognizable. It's an entirely new landscape. When I teach, my students have no idea what I'm talking about when I tell them about what it was like when I was 17. Um, there are very few publishing deals anymore. Uh, you can, you know, hold a mic under your face and a flashlight and post it on YouTube and get a million hits and suddenly you're a big star. <laughs> so there's that. I mean, the, 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 the line in the sand, of course, is when you go and perform in a concert, do you know how to do that? And um, so, so that part is, that part is different. Um, how many slices of the pie is different. You know, it, in, in my early days, you know, the manager managed and got his cut, usually was a man. The publisher got their cut, the record company got their cut. You know, your lawyer and press agent got a fee and then you lived on whatever else was left. These days, every got, everybody tries to get a cut of everything because there are so many new revenue streams. And it's, it's disconcerting because what has happened, which is really interesting and what has not changed, is that in the end, in this moment, what is the same as when I started, is that we make a living on the road. It's very hard to make a living from publishing these days. We used to. Used to used to be able to make a, a living, and it's very hard the way um, uh, the pieces of songwriting royalties are chopped up. Now the road, because you know every performer misses a road. When do you personally feel you'd be okay to get back on stage? I mean, it's going to be a different world. Some people are going to wait till the vaccine. I know for me, I went out for the first time. Me and my wife went out for lunch for her birthday last week. But, First time since March 16th. Okay, I had not gone into restaurants. I'd gone to supermarkets and stuff like that. But for a performer, for you, when will you be ready? Do you know, or is that something you just got to wait to see what happens? Uh, my, you know, my my knee jerk answer is when there's a vaccine that that we know is is safe and true, uh, because because in addition to the that, I believe that once there is a vaccine that is proven the veil of anxiety will lift and people will go back to venues, back to theaters and, and arenas and clubs and bars and restaurants. I, I, at that point, I'm not sure that there will have to be a new protocol, but until there's a vaccine, the protocols are very stringent and necessary because, you know, what most audiences don't know is that it's not just the performer and the musician on stage that creates your event. It's all the people backstage. And it is imperative that all of us stay close. You know, somebody's running the monitors and, and mixing and, you know, pulling the curtain and doing the lights. Everybody's usually in close proximity. So I don't know. I mean, I'm, I am so hungry to get back on the road, but... I have to. I have to be mindful of what's going on, and, and no place is open yet. One more question because I read this in your bio, and I thought it was so cool. And I only know one person who ever has done this before. You sang the national anthem at a baseball game. Yeah, several times. What is that like? I heard it's so weird because you're you got the thing in your ear, and sometimes they say they record it, so you're off. What was that like? Um, well, I've sung the National Anthem at several baseball games, and um, it's a very rigorous song to sing, first of all. 
But while you are singing, because it's a cappella, you have to lately, I mean, in the early days, no. In the early days, there was no ear, ear you know, you, you uh, centered on just hearing your voice. So you would hear the feedback from the echo in the, <laughs> you know, in, in the, the field. And that was nuts. Um, but, you know, I know how it works and I know what to expect and I know about the, the echo and all of that, which is terribly delayed. Um, so I just keep my mind on um, on the the melody and staying and and really not being distracted. I try to tell the story of the national anthem because it's you know though it's a drinking song, it's it's a pretty remarkable lyric. Well, I want to thank you. And and what would your advice be to any young songwriter who's coming up now? What would what wisdom would you impart? Because you've had such a successful career. You won a Grammy, and the year you won the Grammy, that was some insane competition. I mean, that's like, wow. Um, you've worked with Bette Midler, you've worked with Barry Manilow. What would your advice be to a someone who wants to break into business now, or someone who's been doing it for a while and is getting a little frustrated? Yeah. Well, you really have to want this more than anything. And if it's not, you know, I had no plan B. This is just what I was going to do. Um, always hone your skill. Play anywhere. If you are feeling that your songs are not being responded to, don't take it personally. You know, write better songs. Learn from the master lyricists and melodists. You know, study. Study Bob Dylan. Study Bruce Springsteen. Study Marilyn and Alan Berkman. Study Ira Gershwin. Just really immerse yourself into the the American popular song canon because it holds answers. When I get a block on how to approach a lyric, I go to my books of lyricists. I do. It helps me to shake everything free because there's nothing as magical. And get out into the world. You know, if you're writing, don't just lean over the, the whatever, you know, the tablet that you're working on. Take a walk eavesdrop on people's conversations you know the world is rich with inspiration so uh you know that's that's my thought well i want to thank you melissa people go to melissa's website it's a great website uh, melissamanchester.com you can find she's got the bio she's got like little blurbs of news that's going on the awake video is on there um, listen to her music. Go back and listen to her music because it's timeless, as she says. It is timeless. And uh, and she's a part of songwriting history. So check out Melissa Manchester. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 800 episodes. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Twitter, at coopertalk. Instagram, at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.